Welcome to Thinking Reimagined. Thinking Reimagined is a unique platform for thoughts provoking intergenerational dialogue in a diverse and inclusive setting with a focus on impactful change in the global workplace and community. Our stakeholders' conversations aim to spark thought, leadership, curiosity, engagement, collaboration, and learning amongst individuals, teams, and beyond. Enjoy, Enjoy this episode. episode and subscribe to Thinking Reimagined on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, and other outlets. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Thinking Reimagined report. The 2022 UN Climate Change Conference has opened, and the earliest warning we're hearing is that our planet is sending a distress signal. We now know that the past eight years were the warmest and on record. And on the sideline of the two-week negotiations between countries and climate action, we're talking about regeneration of resources on this episode of the Thinking Reimagined podcast. I'll let you know who our discussants are in the minute. But Dr. Ama, you've heard the... COP27 president, the Egyptian foreign minister, urging leaders not to let food and energy crisis related to the Russian invasion get in the way of action on climate change. It's really interesting times as regards climate action, right? You know, Nifemi, you're absolutely correct. And one of the things I love about this episode is that we're focused on how we're going to regenerate the earth. The earth nature gives us so much of our resources that we use for life, for our businesses, the world. Um, WWF, everyone, please try and figure out for me. I have estimated that about a 127 trillion of our resources in comes from nature. And we're at a very tipping point, the World Economic Forum, excuse me, it would always come back to me. So I am most concerned about how we collectively start to think of how we can regenerate nature. And when you look at the SDGs, whether you're looking at climate change, number 13, um, number 14, life below water, number 15, life on land, it has become very important for businesses, governments, stakeholders, everyone to become actively involved in protecting the land, the, the, the water, the earth, because if we don't save the earth, it's going to be disastrous for future generations. So I am so pleased that we have a panel here from a myriad of backgrounds, but very enthusiastic um, environmentalists and activists. So thank you for this platform and I welcome everyone to this open discussion and those joining us on LinkedIn and Facebook. Indeed. Already there are concerns about whether or not countries are on track to meet the climate goals from Glasgow last year. And um, as, as Dr. Amma said, a lot, is, a lot of attention is turned to how fast nature can replenish itself, seeing the huge population explosion that we're experiencing right now and the constant abuse of um, resources in a way that drastically affects the ecosystem. Um, according to Global Footprint Network, we used a year's worth of resources in seven months in 2018. Imagine what's happened right now, some four years after. 
On the panel, we have um, Prince Kyle Obuntayo, who's joining us for the first time. He's an agropreneur, a farmer, director for Wobi Farms Limited. Thank you for joining us, Prince Obuntayo. Thank you for having me. Also, Stalin Evans is here with us, actor, environmentalist, and business executive. He's a member of the Order of the British Empire. Thank you, Mr. Evans, for joining us again. I'm pleased to be here. Indeed. Also on the panel is Akitude Disu, an environmentalist and founder of the Pop Beach Club, a social enterprise based in Lagos, Nigeria. Thank you. I think your beards have grown uh, so much from the last time I saw you. <laughs> You're welcome, Mr. Diesel. It's a pleasure to be here. This, on this podcast. So we have two actors online right now. Um, <laughs> actor, film, film writer, uh, fondly called, well, Dr. Thomas said I shouldn't call him Uncle P. But we call him Uncle P. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining this podcast, Uncle P. I like to quickly begin with Chris. Um, well, it's hard to tell where to begin from. I like to begin with Mr. Disu. I remember reading reading a couple of years ago about how you embarked on um, a sixty-kilometer hike, right, from Elashe to Badagri, and um, one of the one of the reasons uh, why you embarked on that walk was to showcase the proliferation of ocean plastic. I think it's a good place to start from. Talk to us about what you, what you observed and what the journey has been years after. Okay, yeah. So I started a hike called the Point of No Return Hike and it goes, it's 74 kilometers and it goes from Takwa Bay to Badagri. And the point of it was, apart from it being a cultural and historic tour, I wanted to, at that point, see what the effect of ocean plastic was on our, on our coastline. And it was startling. There was an ocean of plastic all the way to Badagri. It was, I mean, this is when you get to about 60 kilometers down the road, there are no human beings there. It is just, it's empty land and it's, and it's full, covered in plastic. There's hardly any difference between the plastic in um, Takwa Bay at the beginning of the, um, the channel to Badagri, right at um, 74 kilometers from where the plastic actually enters into the ocean um, from the city. And, um, and then further to that, I now embarked on a, on a um, there was once when I did a tour and, I, um, and, and there were no crabs or birds to be seen. And this was the first time I'd seen anything like that. So it was, a, it was a call, you know, to a silent spring that, you know, um, it just, it reminded me of, you know, that climate change is real, that we as human beings have done too much. And we really do not only need to stop what we're doing now, but we also need to find ways to fix the problems that we've caused. And so um, this has been my um, focus for the last um, two years now. And in fact, we have a symposium coming up um, on the 14th of this month, which is exactly about this. It's talking about how do we engage a, a new generation 
into these problems that were mainly caused by at least my generation and are now going to um their effects are going to be seen by the new generation and how do we equip them to be able to manage to be able to manage this is what is most important at this time because i think i, I truly believe that um in the coming years um climate change is going to be first and foremost of everything every economic activity is going to be driven by the effects of um climate change we are not going to make the 1.5 um, degree centigrade cutoff map we are already at 1.2 degrees and we're and so we're looking at even though a lot has happened a lot of good stuff has happened in the last um since the Paris um, Agreement, we are looking at um, temperature rises between two to 2.5 degrees, which is going to involve um, the, a lot of really, really dramatic um, um, changes in weather patterns across the world. You talked about the huge pile of plastics you found on the shoreline and how fast that is impacting negatively on nature itself. But I know at some point you 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 created a swimwear line made from recycled plastic. How much of recycling would you say is taking place? Is there progress in this part of the world over the years in that regard from what you've observed? Yes, there's been a great deal of progress, you know, but um but recycling itself has to be um handled on um on an international level. Because like in Lagos right now, there are loads of um, PET recyclers. PET is just, which is the, the, the um, plastic bottles you get water in. And, but that is just one of the many types of plastic. And we have loads of plastics that still can be recycled. We've got PVC, we've got laminates, you know, we've got film that are still not really catered for in recycling. So, and when it comes to actually getting these things to a point where you can recycle them, we're going to have to depend on government to legislate, to enforce certain standards so that all plastic that is put into the system can actually be recycled and taken out of the system. Otherwise, we're never going to get a real circular economy going and we're not going to be able to clean up the mess. All right, I'll get back to you. I just like all of our panelists to know that it's a spontaneous conversation. You can raise your hand if um, something um, pricks, pricks your um, interest and you'd like to jump in on it. Well, let me bring, bring Prince Oguntayo on board. We have a farmer in the house. A lot have been said about regenerative agriculture and how, how, how much toxic is coming from chemicals and how they are poisoning fresh water, marine ecosystem, you know, the pesticides and the fertilizers that we use. In Nigeria, we're battling global inflation, uh, skyrocketing prices in food production. There's a huge fear now as to how much food we'll sell for as we count down to the festive period. When you consider the urgency, I mean, the economic realities, how much of urgency, how much of a priority is generative agriculture um, um, having or get in this part of the world? Um, thank you for um, having me once again. Um, obviously, um, when it comes to uh, factors of production, you know, you have to look at what the input costs uh, to determine the output. Uh, that's just the basic, you know, what goes in will determine what comes out. 
and um, there will there is there will be an impact, inflation impact on prices uh, comes from the inputs um, being um, energy uh, and then being other resources, um, is that these fertilizers and other chemicals and whatnot, and generally the cost of power, you know, of moving in terms of diesel and petrol. So that will have an impact on the on the on Food prices as as we move towards the festive season, but in terms of from um, terms of um, regenerative or how to or the impact is the fact that um, water, seventy percent of uh, water that is consumed is used in agriculture globally, and you know there's a concept of water, of water stress where at some point in time fresh water is going to be a scarce resource. Um, this is this is a could be said could be from the direct impact of uh, global warming or, or, or climate change. So, in terms of um, agriculture, has a role to play in um, alleviating water stress that that is that is um, uh, a global problem that is that is on our doorstep. And likewise, in terms of you know, agriculture can can have an, an impact by by refocusing on how resources are used. Uh, in terms of, um, for example, every time you plow, every time you uh, ridge, every time you do the conventional ways of um, salt, you know, salt preparation, it releases um, carbon from the soil. And so therefore it adds to the problem of uh, global warming. So in terms of, there has to be ways of finding, of, of, of alternative ways of actually farming. And one of them invariably for certain types of crops is, is, is controlled environment agriculture, where you are using a controlled environment, be it a greenhouse, greenhouse, repurposed buildings, to enable you to control the resources that go in. Into the, and one of the advantages of controlled environment agriculture is the fact that there's less use of herbicides and pesticides, so you automatically remove the runoff of, 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 of chemicals into the water system when, when you are able to use controlled um, agriculture uh, cultivation. Also, it uses 90% less water. So in terms of you're able to alleviate some of the water stress uh, problems by, by, by because the system is a, it's a continuous circular system of, of flow, especially with the hydroponics or um, aeroponics technology. So therefore, your water consumption in cultivating is drastically reduced because the water and the nutrients go directly to the roots of the of the plants, versus just versus uh, broadcast irrigation or drip irrigation where it's 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 not as precise. So, so there are advantages and there are um, ways of alleviating some of the challenges um, by changing how we farm, by changing how we cultivate. Now, it's not all. Uh, products, uh, produces uh, can 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 be adapted. I mean, invariably, it's for your vegetables and your soft berries. But there there is a new wave where even tree tree crops are being tested now in terms of apples and pears in a using hydroponics and using a controlled environment. And in very and so so in, in, in broadly speaking, if we change how we farm then it will have a direct impact on some of the uh, global challenges that will have an effect on um, also on, uh, on 
climatic change. And then also in terms of it is uh, control uh, CEA, control environment agriculture, is also scalable. You can scale it to, to whatever economic uh, economies of scale size that is required. So in terms of the use, so then so when it comes down to the unit cost of production, then it really, and, and, and the impact on the cost of food, invariably with the technology now, it, it, it will be just as competitive as old traditional means of, of, of cultivating. And, um, but you get better tasting, better quality, and, and having an impact on the environment, having a, 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 on, on, on a social, economic in, impact as well. So for me, in terms of, you know, we really have to radically change how we, how, how we cultivate. And that's at the doorstep of, of, of where future farming will go. The traditional means, methods of farming has uh, negative um, consequences, climatic, in them. and if we change the modalities of the, or how farming is done, then we will have a direct impact on, on solving some of the global problems that are out there. We'll talk about uh, Datama. What you are know, you saying? Yes, what is interesting about the conversation so far is the importance of nature and humanity and that unison that needs to occur. And, you know, each person that's spoken thus far, and, and Stan, sorry if you were going to say something and I butted in, but what I'm getting is that there has to be a recognition of that unison between nature and humanity. We have to respect it because it gives us all of the resources that we need in order for us to, to live, to work, to eat, to, to thrive. And I think that might be one of the missing pieces because very often we don't think about the supply chain and how that supply chain at the end of the day is going to be impacted by the actions that were taken. And I know that whilst um, in some parts of the world, there's so much emphasis on the ESGs, you know, the environment, the uh, social, the governance. Um, I don't know that that is trickling down to other parts of the world. And that needs to become um, a focal point because there's much talk about cutting emissions and there's much talk about, you know, alternative energies and, and green financing. But the reality is for the average person, they're, they're affected in a, in a very different way than those at the corporate level or in the or places of government. So I, I heard um, Kate and Day talk about having policies and the government having a role in it. But I think that we need to also look at corporations and individuals taking a stand and recognizing the things that we are doing um, in, our, in our communities, whether it's illegal logging or um, dumping of plastics and, and not recycling or um, dumping of chemicals or whatever it might be that we may have to just start at a very grassroots level to address these issues, because if we don't, it's going to become highly um, compounded by the other factors. So finding ways to mitigate it is going to be um, very important, but also looking at the natural um, ecosystem and the supply chain and how it feeds into it. We don't do that. I don't think that's occurring in the same at the same level uh, on the African continent, if I can just revert to that as it is elsewhere. So 
I'm curious to see what um, what Sam has to um, has to say to all of this discussion so far. Me. Yes, you stand. And me. Okay, so, so I've been making some notes. So as Dr. Emma knows, I'm a member of the Dawn Project, which I, I've been in for eight years with Desmond, who owns La Fassi Park, uh, Dr. Pamela, uh, who used to own Sim Labs, and Angela, who's the uh, chairman of um, Punch Newspapers. Yeah. Um, so what we try to do is to raise awareness uh, with the youth of Nigeria. Um, through poetry, visual structures um, in an annual competition uh, and, um, and art itself to reflect uh, climate change through the youth. And uh, I, I lecture to schools and colleges whenever I get the chance. All right. While we're waiting for Mr. Evans to reconnect and join our conversation, I think I had the um, Principal Buntayo talked about the need to evolve from the traditional system of farming to you know, hydroponics and aeroponics and things like that. I just would like to find out from you how far we've gone, particularly in this part of the world in that regard. I've, I've seen a few, a few of such farms, but the majority of the food we consume is still coming from the soil, right? Yes, I mean, in terms of... Um you could have your traditional greenhouse or greenhouse, but still using soil uh, as the medium to, to, to grow and to cultivate. But the, the new wave of new technology is the hydroponics, the aeroponics, which is soilless, where it's just the water and the nutrients that is, um, that is used to cultivate and, and, and to grow. Basically, it's, it's, it's soilless. So, and it, using soilless, um, means to, to grow and cultivate you um, it has an impact from the from the from the perspective that um, you're not using the traditional soils where the um, uh, microorganisms that are in the soil that have that have an impact on whatever you're cultivating and so the direct impact of of um, hydroponics or aeroponics is very early it's very early in the stage in Nigeria or uh, in Africa, in terms of it's the standard technology that's used to cultivate uh, vegetables and fruit in um, in more advanced or developed uh, economies like you know uh, Holland is the second largest producers of vegetables and fruits globally, and um, hydroponics or uh, aeroponics uh, systems is what is used um, to cultivate. The technology can easily be adaptable locally in terms of, you know, um, one, you need a controlled, you know, it, it could be your basic screen house. It doesn't have to be a fabric, you know, uh, uh, an advanced greenhouse structure. It can just be a screenhouse with the net and be locally fabricated. So basically, you're keeping, you're controlling the, the environment of, of, of what you're cultivating. But the use of um, hydroponic systems uh, where you're using uh, soilless has a major, especially with, with a circulating flow of water, has a major, major advantage because you're not losing the water. It's been recycled and it's been reprocessed and the nutrients that it's feeding, it, it's, in, it's within that water system. So that's where the advantages come. That's why you use 90% less water 
So uh, it has a more capital upfront capex uh, investment in terms of you know the, the fact that you know you have to have uh, your uh, energy source, uh, you have to have your motorized uh, pumps to be for to enable the circulating water circulating system, but that energy source is can be part, you know, with, with the advancing technology and the and the reduced cost in solar solar power, um, it, it's brought that it brought down drastically, you know, the use of um, solar energy in terms of you know, and it, so it means that it, these activities can take place off grid. It doesn't have to be uh, on on a grid power system. So they it can be independent, and it could be at uh, whatever, whatever scale. It could be at a low scale, or it could be at a high, uh, larger scale for commercial. Um, it, uh, and so, therefore, we, if it's adapted, we could have uh, sustainable uh, forms of, of farming or cultivating, both at the low scale for uh, individual uh, subsistence farmers. Or it could also be at a commercial scale for large-scale um, commercial farming. It seems Mr. Evans is back. Uh, <laughs> you were sharing with us about a project in the, the line of climate change. Yeah, I think that I think that um, there must have been a, a Chinese organisation listening in, and they cut me off when I said they were one of the biggest polluters. But I, yeah, I'm back now. So I was in full flow. So. Um, uh, one, of the, one of the things I, I do when I um, talk to the organisations, principally the school organisations, is talk to the children about um, being climate aware. Um, and one of the examples I use, and Dr. Anders heard this on, a new, on numerous occasions, is a vehicle called uh, a G-Wagon, which has Mercedes badges on it, but the vehicle here is actually made in India, the one that's sold here. Um, and the CO2 on the standard G-Wagon is between 297 grams per kilometre travelled and 440, whereas, uh, for example, a Range Rover hybrid would produce 28 grams. So the G-Wagon is around 900 times more polluting than a Range Rover. So what I say to the children is that you can reflect your success, but rapid in kindness. Um, now, the last time I, I put that lecture across, and I, and I, I choose the G-Wagon, but it's any V8-engined car or any V6-engined car. Um, they're hugely polluting, and I don't think we can even scratch the surface in terms of changing the current structure and growth of CO2 in the world. But what we can do is make a statement as individuals, particularly the people on this, pa on this panel. So the last time I gave that lecture, and it's quite a long lecture when I talk to the kids, it's seven minutes, one of them said, what car do you drive? And I'd arrived in my forerunner, which is a V6, and the CO2 on that is 224. So I made an active decision uh, 11 weeks ago to stop using it, and I'm now using a CO2 of 118, which is a 1.4 litre small saloon. So it was an active decision. So, so what I'm doing, I'm saying, look, I am climate aware. I'm, I'm not reflecting my status. I'm driving a small, albeit new saloon. Now, it's easier to do that in um, the first world countries. My daughters, for example, both drove, drive electric cars. My grandchildren have to walk to school two days a week. They ban, ban the use of cars and they have a CO2 life chart. So uh, that's submitted every two weeks. Here, because most of the people live hand-to-mouth, that can't be done. But we, as um, 
the 1%, the 1% elite, can make a statement in relation to it because we can simply, we can simply do away with driving V6 and V8 cars. And they're driven here principally because the petrol is so cheap. I mean, the, the, um, I filled up, when I had the forerunner, I filled it up and it cost me, I think it was 8,000 Naira. My daughter's uh, husband uses a diesel car. He filled it up and it was a smaller tank and I equated it to Naira and it was 114,000 Naira. Yeah, so it is easier to make the statement as well. But, but, we, but we consciously must say to people, we're not going to drive large engine cars. And we're, we're hearing on here some very, very laudable principles to go forward. But we as individuals have got to make the statement. You know, people say to me, why are you in such a small car? Because I made a decision to stop using a polluting car that's destroying the planet. And the G-Wagon is the personification of that, of evil, that you're polluting the planet and you don't care. You're saying I'm successful and I don't care. So I finished it. There you go. Well done. <laughs> Who else thinks of the climate before buying a car? You've got to, I do, I do. I'm not, when, I land at, when I land at Heathrow, I am not allowed to park on my daughter's drive unless the car is below 99. I once arrived in a car that was 111, and I had to park it down the road. That's how passionate they are about climate change. It's got to be below 99. The G-Wagon at 287 to nearly 400, it's thousands of percent more polluting. So are the big Toyota V8s. And I don't know whether you're aware, but Mercedes and BMW are not allowed to make V8 engines in, the, in Europe now. No V8 engines are manufactured there. They're made in India because they judge CO2 emissions per capita. So um, even in Japan, Toyota don't make V8 engines. They're, ju they're just an, an aberration. They're disgusting. If you're driving one of those, you are sucking out, you're sucking out fuel yeah, and you're chucking out CO2. We have to make a statement as individuals. Amber's heard all this before. I, I, I like the fact to. that you have lived and worked in um, some three different continents of the world, if not more, the UK, India, and now you're in Nigeria. I'd like you to speak to how we can... Uh, yes, this is a thought world. Oh, can you hear me? Dr. Amber, yes. were you saying something? Yes, I just noticed you used the word continents and yet you mentioned countries. We are educated. No, no, no. I was saying three different continents. Uh, Mr. Evans, am I right? Yes, I have, yeah. Uh -huh. I, I, was, I was going to hear you speak to how this can be a thing in a country like Nigeria, where the environment doesn't come to mind when people make economic decisions like what you've just talked about. Um, well, I think it does on some occasions. Um, I, I choose vehicles because that's uh, part of my my original uh, the original industry I was involved with. Um, I, I can tell you that my experience, anecdotally, well, no, not anecdotally, factually, in India, was the buyers of vehicles were were more conscious. So, for example, in the factory where they make the majority of components for the G wagon in India which is in a place called Pune, just outside of Mumbai, Prasan Fiordia, who's the owner of that, which is Force Motors, a joint venture uh, with another company, he bought a Cayenne hybrid because he is aware of CO2 concerns. So he made a conscious decision. And many, many of the, the Indian successful business people, the elite, drive CO2, uh, drive vehicles that have low em lower emissions. It is a conscious decision. Having said that, fuel is substantially 
more expensive there. I just, um, I wanted to jump on, on what he said, you know, and it's like the average car user anyway uses almost two tons, produces almost two tons of CO2. And, you know, and, um, and we did a plastic free July and the amount of plastic that is produced in wealthy households is, is, is so overwhelming, you know, compared to what's produced by the bottom of the pyramids. You know, they produce hardly any, or they use hardly any plastic, you know. And so this whole thing has to actually come from the top and filter down. So what Evans was saying is very important because it is us at the top who have to show the um, good example. And you see, we also create the trends that everybody follows. So it's, um, it's really important what the first world or the industrialized nations are doing and everything. But it's we as well in, on a Nigerian, you know, um, talking of Nigerians, we as well at the top have to start showing this, not just actually um, talking about it, you know. And that's why I was saying things like government policy, because as I said, it boils down to the price of petrol, if you can afford to use you know it's very important for the kind of car you use um and and you know and carbon credits the use of carbon credits as a as a stick and a carrot is something we're going to see a lot of as we move forward i hope you know to try and help us um have a tool to combat um this as well it's really important this is the thinking reimagined podcast sponsored by allied empowerment Allied Empowerment Consultancy offers leadership and innovation through bespoke human development solutions, brain-based leadership and coaching. Allied Empowerment empowers business leaders, teams and individuals to intentionally accentuate desired outcomes built on trust, curiosity, psychological safety, engagement and communication. Allied Empowerment, thriving in a sustainable and valued manner. You know, I, what I was going to say actually dovetails with what Stan and Kate and they just talked about, and that's going back to the basics. How do we, how do we get everyone to understand that they are contributing to the issues uh, at hand? Because when you have people looking up to that one percent and perceiving that the actions of the one percent is the right thing and the thing to aspire for, yet the one percent is not aware or they know, but they pretend not to be aware that they are contributing to the problem. I, I, I think that, you know, there, there, is a, there is a position that we must take to become more, um, more nature sensitive, more nature aware. I'm, I'm looking for the right phrase today because it is easy to, when you have the funds to buy bottles of water and keep drinking and abandoning them, whether you finish them or not, but the reality is that many of these plastic bottles, because that's what is predominant, can be reused. And why aren't we making initiatives or putting in place initiatives that are moving us away from some of these um, activities? I mean, why do we have to go to parties and people are handing out more and more plastic? Do you need any more plastic? The answer is no. You probably have many of these tubs already, so stop handing out plastics. Start to produce other alternatives that are friendlier to nature and reusable as opposed to um, plastic 
I mean, plastic tops, plastic this, it's it's all over the place. So they, we need to push for alternatives to be in place. Um, and one of the other topics that came to mind as I think it was Stan, but it might've been Kayode talking and I was talking about, defore I was thinking about deforestation we're not spending much time talking about deforestation because that's also affecting the the energy level, the resources, the regeneration of, of the resources and all of that. So I do think we also need to bring that to the forefront of our discussion as well. Indeed. How much are we doing with education? I know that we've talked about the fact that um, not many people are aware about this, but uh, Mr. Evans also talked about um, the, the need for children to know early. Mr. Uh, Prince, Prince Oguntayo, would you say that we're doing enough in educating our children on topics like this? Can I say something, Nifemi, about that question you just raised? Now, where your child attends school, affects the information that you have. Um, but when you're talking mm -hmm. about a country where supposedly the, the population is 200 and something, you know, nobody knows the real figure, how many of those children are actually getting um, this type of education in a country where, for example, in Nigeria, you're not teaching history. Are you going to spend time teaching um, environmental studies? The, the emphasis is not there. So for the children who are able to go to schools where these topics are relevant and part of the curriculum, they are getting it. But for those who are in schools where they're giving them the basic, the basic three R's, they're not, they're not touching on this topic as well. And that's why programs like, um, I know Ketende has a program that he does as well in Elasha. And um, you know the, our organization live abundantly. We're really trying to ramp it up as well. It becomes absolutely essential. But um, it depends on where you are. I mean, if you're in this part of the world where I am currently, it is uh -huh. part of it is part of your learning, and you see it everywhere you go. I mean, we have to recycle down to food waste. You know, your food waste goes into a container. Your recyclables, the mixed waste, all of that is done over here. Um, I remember attending a, new, a, a program in Lagos whilst I was there, I won't name it, but this was a government-sponsored program. And what they wanted to do was hand out plastic bags so that people could use plastic bags to sort out their waste. <laughs> the big rollout of how we could sort out and put in plastic bags. And each of us was given, I probably came back with about 10 or 15 plastic bags. Wow. Dealing with the issue. It's not about plastic bags and sorting it out. And after they sort it out, who is coming to collect it? Or are you just dumping it outside so that people go through it and resort it and take what they think is of value and leave the plastic bags again, which then goes into the drain, clogs it up. Have you solved an issue? The answer is no. But that was a government project. In Lagos. <laughs> it speaks a lot to whether or not government is paying lip service to most of the agreements that we hear about year in, year out. Um, we have a farmer in our midst, for instance. I know that government distributes fertilizers to farmers and things like that. Would you say there is a, a track record that you have observed as to 
whether because it was Mr. Disu who said that the change has to come from the top, would you say that there is a government-driven initiative or policy in this regard? I mean, the policies that are formulated, it's, it's a different kettle of fish in terms of the actual implementation of it, uh, the actual, uh, you know, what's on ground. Um, but it, yeah, it, 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 it does start from, from the top. It must start, you know, it's, it's unfortunate. It's not trickle down economics, but it's, it, it's, it's, it's trickle down, act, you know, actualization you know, in, the, in the sense of um, be it um, use of resources, um, governments or those who are key decision makers or those who are in a position to actualize, they're the ones who have to make the conscious decisions and the con conscious efforts to say that they will use only sustainable means of energy. Uh, they're the ones that have to decision that we will only use organic fertilizers or they are the ones that have made conscious decisions that we will not use plastics or we will only use renew, renew, renewable uh, resources. Um, that, that one is the sacrosanct and I think that, like, like it's been agreed, you know, it, it starts from the top, just like uh, Stan says, you know, it's, it's, it is the 1%. Who are in? Who are going going into farming, or who are going to any? You know that must decide that okay, this is how consciously I am going to cultivate going forward. I'm going to see how much I can imp what the impact is on, on climate, uh, carbon footprint. Um, how can I use sustainable solutions, be it energy, be it resources? It has to be a conscious decision now that anybody that's going into farming. And like I said, it, 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 could, it could start, it could be applied to um, uh, those who are just on the uh, subsistence level, or it could also be applied to commercial large-scale farming. But it's a conscious decision that, you know, that, uh, I'm not going to do things the way they used to be done because it, it has an impact on, on global, on, on, on the climate or, you know, on water stress, and going to consciously decide that I will, I will cultivate with this new input to know that I get this output. And technology is enabling that you know the unit cost is not as you know the disparity between the old conventional way and being being conscious. You know, unit cost is not that much different. It's just the fact that. Um, do you want to continue the old way and have continuous impact on, on climate or you change how we cultivate in agriculture uh, for the better, not just only on the cost, mm. but also the quality of what is grown. And, and, uh, and, and, and that in itself uh, is a sacrifice, it's a sacrifice that has to be made by all. But like I said, it starts from those who are in the position to cultivate and, and to educate and then to educate those, you know, there is an alternative way of actually growing and cultivating and, and that is, that is, that has more social and economic climate impact. Indeed. 
Indeed. So talking about... Uh, Nifemi, um, Eukarya has joined us and we really should bring her into the conversation. She's a special exactly. guest today. It's her first time and she's doing some amazing work in um, the Delta area. Um, Eukarya, can you turn on your camera so we can all meet you and uh, welcome you and thank you for the amazing work you're doing in terms of um, cleaning up or I think you call it bioremediation. I love that term. Are you aware um, and Just to add, Dr. Amma, that um, Dr. Yeah. Eukarya has just been awarded the 2022 John Maddox Prize uh, for engaging communities in conflict to research solutions. And um, she's been doing a great work with cleaning up oil spillage in the Niger Delta. So it's really a pleasure to have you join us, Dr. Eukarya. Are you there now? Yeah, I'm here. I'm trying to connect to the computer. I'm, I'm on the phone right now because I just jumped into the office. So I'm going to make a change over to the computer. I'm starting it. It's all right. It's lovely to meet you and to have you here. Oh, of course. I'm so excited being here. Um, okay, I'd like to say a few things. You know, I think um, also like in this whole regeneration that we're talking about, in Nigeria, you know, we're used to this um, term, resource control. And I think that is a, a real problem in the ideology, in the way we, um, you know, it translates to people. You have no control over the resources of the earth. Human beings have got to understand this. The earth controls, it's what you, the best you can do is manage these resources. And I think that, that that phrase resource control is really at the, at the heart of the danger and damage we're doing to the earth. Because you know, when we think about controlling resources, we think we have some sort of power. And that is what has gotten us into this situation we are, where OPEC thinks it's controlling resources, where China thinks you know, it's controlling resources, African governments think they are controlling resources. You know, it's a it's a very dangerous term to to use. You know, the um, Department of Forestry thinks it's controlling resources. You know, the best you can hope for is to manage these things. And you know, going forward, that's you know that's what we have to do. Start thinking how are we going to manage them for the next generation because they are not ours to control. And it's this idea that has gotten us into this trouble that we're in now. And, and now there's a price to pay. And so we have to learn how to manage our way, you know, just the way you've taken a loan from the bank and you've got to repay it some way or the other is exactly what we're facing right now. We've been, you know, taking a carbon loan from the earth and it's back for payment now. So we have to actually train this generation, you know, we have to educate the generation and train them in, how they're going to be able to basically pay the carbon. Well, there's yeah. a bit of um, conversation in this regard, Mr. Disu. The COP27 is ongoing. Um, there seem to be more awareness now than in the past 10 years. Uh, are we on the right track? Because if you have an issue with the terminology of um, a whole continental organization, it would sound like I don't know how to put it, but is there so much um, reflection 
is there a relationship between the increase in conversation in this regard and the actual work that is taking place in saving the continent? I mean, in saving the climate. Yes, yes, there is a there is a direct relationship. Um, a lot of work has gone, and we do know that we are probably going to um, be able to. Um, save humanity's role um, um, space on the planet. We're not all going to die, thankfully, because of the work that has been done in the last 10 years or more, you know, and, um, and we may right now be able to, if, if all, the, um, all the countries stick to their pledges and everything, which is very durable, and we may be able to get to, to, to be able to restrain climate change to between two to 2.2, I think 2.5 degrees, which is still going to be terrible, but at least we will be able to live on this planet. Most of us will still be able to um, live on this planet, but we will see massive changes, especially around coastal areas, um, flood prone areas, you know, um, we're going to see drought and, you know, desertification taking over, but we would also, there's a lot of science that has gone in and it's coming to really help. And the awareness as well means we may be able to stop some of the most harmful um, practices that we do right now. So it is good news. And thankfully, 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 um, Dr. Yukiri has joined us. She's also doing a fantastic job in that regard. Uh, with our cleanup project in Niger Delta region of the country. Uh, Dr. Ama mentioned uh, bowel remediation. It's unfortunate that um, we may not have enough time to explore all the works we've done. Perhaps we'll, we'll dedicate another episode to have an exclusive chat with you, Dr. Eukarya. But would you like to talk to us about uh, your bowel remediation pro uh, uh, project in in Niger Delta, Nigeria, how far you've gone and how much progress you've made? Of course, um, thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. I say that again. Um, my bioremediation project in the Niger Delta, um, I have a lot of communities like that. Um, in Ahoda, I have two communities. Um, we started some in Nogale in Eleme, but we abandoned it uh, due to insecurity and trace. Um, so we we also have one going now, but we we having this one confined in a space allocated to us by the Nostra at the moment. So it's ongoing. What we're doing right now, we're trying to develop nutrients that can be slow releasing because we found in some of our interventions that we have that the nutrients get fast exhausted and that's uh, some kind of trust the process. The, the microorganisms need to be recharged in some way that they are not overwhelmed. So we don't have um, overnutrition of the ecosystem. So this is what we're working on at the moment. So we have a little grant from uh, BW Offshore to do this. So hopefully that we can make a headway <laughs> with this. So. Um, I've had a lot of variants of the phytoremediation where we use plants to support uh, the microorganisms. At least they give them a warm a structure to hold them in place, unlike the strict bioremediation. So they enjoy the nutrients from the plants. As it is at the root, 
uh, root nodule level or even the rhizosphere, the root uh, soil zone. So they enjoy the isolation and you know, the relationship is amazing. The plants make food for itself. So we have identified a lot of plants that are native to the Niger Delta that, that have varied uh, performance percentages that we have recorded. Um, so we have tried in many of our interventions to engage communities. So it can be like um, an integrated design where the communities can get the plants, they can have them for us, they can teach us indigenous ways of farming in their communities. So in this way, they co-own it and it runs and they help us with watering the garden, I mean, at the site of reclamation. So they water them for us, we call on phone, they call us in their emergencies or they make observations of something they didn't expect or we didn't tell them they would see, we run down. So this approach we found it more useful because when we all team of researchers, um, sometimes they think that you have money to come with those interventions. Even if you have a grant, the grant is not to the communities, it's to reclaim the soil. Uh, maybe you can, the most you can do is make what we call in a local parlance, polar to the community. When we go for engagement, like the field recognizance, where you have meetings with different uh, levels of leadership, the women group, men group, uh, youth group, and all of that, the chiefs. So if you engage them together, you have no other obligation, but for them to work hard to be co-vangers for the projects. Okay, so we found it weird while they welcome antagonizing progress in their community. So our recent engagement where we get them involved in the process, we co-own it. So they get worried as we get worried if things are not going well, if the plants are dying. So they make suggestions. So we found the indigenous knowledge useful in our science because some of them are fast um, uh, eroding the indigenous knowledges uh, they have and they share with us. So we go find out why they do what they do and explain to them. And sometimes the interaction gets um, fruits, you know, going forward. Um, Allow me to in very quickly to your career, if you can hear me. You're saying yes, that, can, uh, can you hear me? Yes, I can hear you. Yes, I just wanted you to uh, enlighten us a little more. Bioremediation, you use planting vegetation to remove, you know, pollutants caused by oil in the soil, right? Yes. We have the straight bioremediation where you have only the microbes. Okay, where you have only the microbes, but most times we don't introduce foreign species. So you don't change the ecosystem. So we make identify, we, we make identification of um, hydrocarbon loving species and then encourage them to multiply in numbers. Okay characterize the soil to see what is best for the soil. Sometimes we have to correct for pH. If the pH is not optimum for performance of that degradation. So we along the line introduce plants, which is a variant we call phytoremediation. I had to, and I told you what advantages they have when we use plants. So depending on uh, the site, when we do size assessment, you design what is most beneficial to uh, that site. So we can just, without seeing the site or making assessment, decide 
to use the plans or to go straight to um, activating the existing community, the microbial community. So I get uh, you. But okay, go ahead. What what remedy is this process providing? Because I, I have covered the oil spillage story in the Niger Delta for a couple of years. And okay. it is massive, right? Is this mm -hmm. a long time, a long-term process that intends to fix the pollution in the soil, or it actually helps with taking the oil away from the water surface? Yeah, the the bioremediation or East Varian phytoremediation takes away the hydrocarbons from the soil. And we have different mechanisms through which this happens. So a lot of studies have gone into studying the plants. Some of the plants will uptake the contaminants. And you know, we have heavy metals as associated contaminants where we have the crude oil polluted sites. All of the crude oil polluted sites will find heavy metal, the associated contaminants, maybe in the process of refining or exploration or the additives used. So they introduce heavy metals. So some of the plants, would uptake the metals or the recalcitrant hydrocarbons and then live with them without doing anything to them for their lifetime. So they're taking them away from interacting with the, with the environment, soil environment or water environment, but they are still very much available as, to as toxicants or contaminants in the plant. So if that is the mechanism identified, if the plants die, we treat the plants as priority waste. So if there are heavy metals that we are concerned about, we need to recover the heavy metals and use them in the laboratory as a low grade heavy metals for students to do experiments, okay? So if they are, if they chelate them, sometimes they chelate the metals in such a way that they become non-reactive or less reactive. So we may not bother. See, is a lot going through studying how the plants behave and the contaminants mm -hmm. of interest. Mm -hmm. And some exhale them into the atmosphere. They take them and then metabolize them and take them up into the atmosphere where they are not reactive. And some also through the exudation will release chemicals, the plants, and they interact with these micro with these contaminants and they are non reactive and not, not washed away. They remain under the root zone for the life of the plant. And then they can react with the environment. So there are different mechanisms we've, yeah, we've uh, identified. Some of the hydrocarbons get broken down into less hydrocarbons that are of less concern to an environmentalist like me. All right. So, so it feels so much like we're in the classroom already. I'm just going to ask everyone to give the final comments. <laughs> Dr. Abba, we're going to have to have an exclusive with um, Dr. Yukaria when she's chanced. But I'd just like everyone to speak to uh, what the listener or the viewer can do differently moving on. Uh, we've, we've heard uh, Mr. Evans talk about certain personal decisions is made, which is uh, climate friendly. The Earth, the planet in which we live, is um, under huge threat, and it's our home. We, we can't. Well, some people are considering moving to other planets, anyways, but that's not a privilege uh, available for majority of the people. So I'd like you to speak to 
taking personal responsibility as we begin to wrap up this episode? Yeah, so uh, taking personal responsibility to bring down the um, emissions we have in the atmosphere that contributing directly or indirectly to the global warming or the depletion of the ozone layer. So we need um, to plant, we need to have vegetations in our environment, in our beautiful gardens. If we can even have those in the sitting rooms, like plants, not the artificials, these are healthy lifestyles that we can adopt. And we, we should try, you're saying something, okay. We should try to also use the patronage of chemicals. Yeah, so going organic plant has a lot of solutions and nature has given us quite a lot. Mother nature has solutions, so we should try and be closer to the mother nature. That will help us to control the emissions that we make unknowingly or knowingly that contributing to the climate change impacts that we see even in the biodiversity in our forests. Fantastic. Let's take your final thoughts, Mr. Evans, Mr. Disu, and Dr. Ama. So my final words would be a reiteration of that which I've already said, which is we are part of the 1% lead by example. Don't drive a gas guzzling V8 or V6 car. Get a car that's below at least 150 CO2. Um, and secondly, if you travel and you fly, don't travel business class. That, you, that produces five times more CO2 than traveling economy class because of the space you're taking up. Lead by example, show people you care about the environment. Fantastic. Thank you, Mr. Evans. You're next, Mr. Dees. Hi, um, I think for me, um, I think the one thing you can do to take responsibility right now is um, separation of your plastic at source. And there's a very, we have a, um, a YouTube video up on our Twitter and on our um, Instagram right on the beach that shows how you can do this quite easily. And I have done this for about um, two years now. And once you're able to separate that plastic at source, and get it, um, and you just tie it up and leave it because Loma are aware when they see they're, they're aware when they pick it up that this plastic can be recycled, and there are so many things going on. Uh, it will be taken out of the normal plastic chain and end up being recycled. So all of us can really do this. Um, just check out the video; it's on our Instagram and on our Twitter, right on the beach. And um, yeah, just take responsibility for every piece. As even said, yeah. Any car you're using, as long as it's a it's a petrol uh, diesel car, you're already you know you already owe the earth about one and a half tons of carbon dioxide that you're going to put into it this year, and you can calculate back to see what it is you're responsible for on this planet, and maybe start trying to find ways to um, to give back. Thank you, Dr. Ama. Go get an electric car. Get in when we have generators. And I don't think any of the inverters are going to be able to help recharge it. So on one hand, we have to be realistic and honest about the situation where we are in the world. It's easier to get an electric car here in Nigeria because you have to be able to recharge it and also be able to maintain it over there. But what I 
to say is everyone has pretty much touched on what my final thoughts will be. I think that we have to recognize that we are and must learn to live in unison with nature. Nature in its own magnificent way has always had ways to self-correct itself, but we as humans have altered the course of nature by the actions that we have taken. And we must now make changes that are necessary to regenerate the natural resources. It starts with you and I, but also the children and those um, in authority, you know, the, the politicians, the businesses, but everybody must recognize the, the, the burdenance of, of the ecosystem and why it is important to understand the entire supply chain from what we take from nature to what we have to give back to nature. So I'm very grateful that we had this occasion to discuss this matter. And I do hope that we can come back again. It can't just be an annual topic. It needs to be a monthly topic where we're sharing ideas and we're bringing in other um, concerned stakeholders and experts to the field. And I will say this, data, data, data. Um, on the African continent as a whole, Collecting data is not a priority, but we have to start collecting data. And it is important for us to work on capturing what we're about to lose so that we can hopefully in the future, bring it back into the, um, the ecosystem. Thank you, everyone. Absolutely. Dr. Amma, thank you, Dr. Amma, Executive Director, Leva Bordentley, Executive Producer, Thinking Remarging, the Prince Kaudio Guntayo joined us earlier, an agripreneur and Director of Fowlby Farms Limited, Stanley Evans, MBA, actor, environmentalist, and business executive, and Dr. Ukaria, environmental biochemist and associate professor at the University of Portacot, winner of the 2022 John Maddox Prize. Thank you for joining us. Uh, Mr. Kintade Diso is an environmentalist and founder of Pop Beach Club, a social enterprise based in Lagos. I want to especially thank everyone for finding time to join us on this episode. Like Dr. Amma said, this should be a continued conversation and we're looking forward to hear with you again. I am Nifemi Ogunsoye. Bye for now. This has been a Thinking Reimagined podcast. The executive producer is Dr. Amma, co-producer Peter Amon Boyle, and it is moderated by Nifemi Okuntoye. The podcast is edited by Nelkan and supervised by Dun Sokwa. Thinking Reimagined emphasizes the importance of transformational conversations which have as their aim the bringing about of the rich diversity of thoughts and most importantly, powerful and applicable effective solutions and change. The views, opinions and contributions of the panelists are exclusively theirs and do not reflect the opinions of thinking reimagined producers or personnel. Thank, Thank you, you for, for listening, listening and we, we hope you have enjoyed, enjoyed this episode. episode. We invite you to subscribe to Thinking Reimagined on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play and other outlets. We look forward to presenting another riveting episode next week. Thinking Reimagined podcast is produced by Live Abundantly. We welcome your thoughts and invite you to visit our website livesabundantly.com 
or you can follow us on social media and live abundantly eight. Thinking, Thinking reimagined, changing, changing the, mindset the mindset for a better global, global society. society.